Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. Hello, this is Brian from Making Action Happen. Thanks for listening to us. We really do appreciate it. A few thoughts about this episode before we kick it off. Um, This whole episode is dealing with a possible collective bargaining bill that's going to be introduced in the Colorado State House. At the time we recorded this, it had not yet been dropped. In fact, the language for it was not even released. So we interviewed Chancellor Joe Garcia uh, to talk about its impact on community colleges in Colorado. As soon as we recorded that, they released the language and higher ed was not in it. So with that, we went to the county commissioners because the bill language focuses on the counties. We invited our county commissioners that are members of Action 22 to come in and give their comments about how this bill will impact them. Again, at this time, we have not seen the bill introduced yet. We've seen the language. Uh, so by the time you hear this, it could be introduced, it may not be introduced, and things could have changed. We really appreciate you listening. And also at the end of it, we had Dr. Patty Arjavik come in. And this was, again, after the higher ed portion was dropped. And she really gave thanks for, you know, the legislators listening to her and listening to her concerns along with all the community colleges. But again, at this time, it has not been introduced. It does focus on the counties. So please listen to the county commissioners and their thoughts about how this will impact their counties. And then towards the end, you'll hear from Chancellor Garcia, followed up by Dr. Javik. Again, we appreciate you listening to our show. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, concerns, please email us at show at action22.org and we'll get you an answer. Again, thanks for listening. We're here with County Commissioner Garrison Ortiz from, of course, Pueblo County, who uh, is done such tremendous work for the county in the last few years as he's served here, but he's also uh, he's also a member of the Action 22 board. And as you've heard from so many of our county commissioners today, we wanted to add Garrison's voice. It's been such a big influence for the entire region. And um, one of the things that Garrison does a very good job of is he recognizes that the impacts that happen here in Pueblo uh, ripple to the entire region. So we're not acting in a silo. So this has been a really crazy week um, on a whole lot of fronts. We were um, happy to hear, of course, that they took the higher ed out of the bill, out of the uh, collective bargaining bill. But uh, that means the full force of this is going to now lay uh, on counties. How is this going to affect Pueblo County? Yes, it uh, sure has been a a crazy (laughs) week, certainly. Um, you know, I do sit on the community college systems board for the state and am pretty involved with our local community college and university. So, yeah, it was uh, a slight breath of fresh air that uh, yeah. high, higher education was pulled uh, out of the bill. However, um, you know, we we had kind of a double whammy, or, or I did at least, um, at the county as well. So we're still, um, uh, still very, uh, very much concerned about uh, the bill getting through in its current form as it affects counties. Uh, a lot of my colleagues across the state, uh, various county commissioners have reached out um, to uh, not just get perspective, but uh, to really organize and uh, ensure that uh, the dramatic uh, fiscal impact that this would have 
to all county budgets and the consequences of that uh, to the services we're able to give to our citizens is is heard loud and clear. So we're asking this of all of our uh, county commissioners. What has been the what has your involvement been in the stakeholder process as far as this goes? How how much uh, input did were you asked? What your thoughts were? Well, How's that been? Well, there re- there really hasn't been any. Um, we uh, the the best that the only thing we were able to do was really to uh, uh, through CCI we were asked to prepare um, an analysis of what the fiscal impact would be of this bill that would be passed. Uh, and I can tell you it would be absolutely devastating. Uh, the number is uh, a little bit over, I think it's a little bit over $14 million wow. uh, in just the first year alone. Um, aside, there would be many implications from additional staff and FTEs uh, to salaries, wages, and those sorts of things. Um, you know, when you're dealing with a number, uh, you, you know, we cut budgets all day long, but uh, uh, $14 million a year, $15 million a year on year one in perpetuity uh, to start in a lurch in January uh, is pretty pretty drastic, uh, and, pretty dramatic. And one point that uh, one of the commissioners made, too, is like, that's just the minimal cost. Exactly. That's not factoring that's, in other things that could happen on top of that as well, correct? That That's correct. I mean, those, those are estimates. I mean... I think a lot of folks are, are being a little bit conservative in, in their estimates of what we do know. Um, but, you know, I, I think what's really disheartening, at least for me as a, as a chairman of our board, is, you know, Commissioner Griego coming into his, uh, his new role a little bit over a year ago. Um, you, you know, we were certainly always uh, looking to see what we could do to um, uh, make Pueblo County a better place to work. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Commissioner Griego was very aggressive in uh, wanting to push for um, – higher wage rates and, uh, and better benefits in working at Pueblo County and certainly commend him and our board jumped on that. And, uh, this past year, uh, there were, uh, one to two different, um, uh, bonuses that were given. Mm-hmm. Pueblo County awarded, uh, recognition pay for all of its employees countywide. Mm-hmm. It also had hazard pay on top of that, uh, for law enforcement, uh, as well. In addition, uh, we rewarded our workforce with a 10% raise across the board. Wow. Uh, so a double-digit raise, um, bonuses. So this was the biggest comp- – we're coming off one of the biggest compensation years in Pueblo County's history in, in literally over decades. I, I cannot recall the last time that was done. And, you know, and that's done for many reasons. One, that's to uh, rightfully reward uh, a great workforce that we have, but also it's to compete – uh, with the private sector as well for for workers, um, you know, and and the other thing too is we've made a really concerted effort uh, with a lot of employee input um, to really receive feedback on how we can, you know, the other things uh, from a non monetary standpoint that we can do to make our, uh, our our county an ideal place to work. Um, so we're doing a lot of different things when it comes to employee rec- recognition. Uh, for example, we do on the spot recognition with. Uh, commissioner coins that are worth a hundred dollars and a day off, and and you know we we really have a good culture in the county moving in the right direction, and we do have some unions uh, within public county government uh, as well that we work exceptionally well with, and um, I think are quite reasonable, and and we just have a good professional working relationship with. So I, I think just at least from public county's perspective, other than what it does from a uh, uh, how it just devastates and levels our budget, 
Um, I think it really is frustrating because we've made a really great effort uh, to make Pueblo County a place to work, and and we've been very successful with that. So that's amazing to hear. It's got to feel a little bit like an insult. It's it's certainly tough to uh, to deal with. I, I think what what worries us the most at the county is, um, you, you know, like I said, I mean, when you're cutting uh, well above ten, fifteen million dollars um, in one year in a lurch, I mean, that that uh, you know, we certainly don't want to be uh, alarming, but um, you know, there's only so much that you can cut. Uh, from the budget. I mean, the first thing you look at are non-mandated services. We do a, a lot when it comes to community support. Mm-hmm. So when you look at uh, all the various capital projects and nonprofits, not just through CSAC, if, C- if what we did through CSAC alone uh, w- was it, um, you know, that, that certainly would not nearly be enough to the level of support we give. So uh, the impact isn't just going to be felt by Pueblo County employees and Pueblo County government. It will certainly have a compounding effect when you look at uh, the funding that we will no longer be able to provide to uh, a lot of community partners um, as well. That that does include the city and Pueblo West Metro District right. and, and nonprofits and those sorts of things because, you know, when you're um, really struggling to, um, to make ends meet, you start with non-mandated mm-hmm. services. And in addition to that, I, I don't even know that'll be enough. Um, it's It's interesting, but the workforce could unfortunately be adversely impacted and affected. Um, the only way to cut to those uh, numbers that cut into bone is, is really to um, really dramatically uh, change the composition of your workforce. Yeah. Well, the, um, that would mean a huge layoff in the opposite direction you want to go. We heard from Kevin Grantham this mm-hmm. morning that one of his biggest concerns was the um, uh, human services that they would have to, uh, Fremont County would be forced to cut. I mean, they run really very, very lean. Um, and so, you know, he's he's bothered by um, a complete uh, disregard for that, those kinds of impacts that, that they do. Um, what would that look like for, for Pueblo County? You know, we're a workforce of uh, approximately 1,200 employees. Um, we certainly have a very large workforce. I almost feel like the the bigger the workforce, the the more of a fiscal impact it it, it looks to have. Right. Um, you know, in my experience at the uh, at the county over the past uh, several years, and certainly in uh, you know finances, as you know, Sarah is an area that I am have been very keen on yes, uh, when have. it comes to the county. So I don't say this lightly, but uh, uh, absolutely. I mean. Uh, furloughs, um, uh, decreasing our workforce, uh, dramatically eliminating positions. Um, I mean, those are things that that will have to be on the table. So you've worked so hard over the last few years, not only to um, clean up, but uh, increase transparency, um, be able to move forward on restructuring debt, um, Mm -hmm. all of that that you've done. That's correct. There's no... There's no pork in your budget, is there? No, no. I mean, I, I think the, um, you know, we have a very, um, when we go through our budgeting process, um, you know, we, we are certainly accountable for how we use people's money. I mean, we have, 
introduced a lot of internal financial controls, we have tightened up quite a bit. I mean, just short of going to a zero-based budget, right? for those that do budgeting, you know um, uh, how, how tough that is. But, um, I mean, we, we put out a lot of money to the community uh, as county government. I, I think if you really look at it as, uh, as a whole in Pueblo, when you look at the budget of the Metro District, the City of Pueblo, uh, and others, Pueblo County by far has one of the one of the largest budgets in the community. Uh, we have a two hundred plus million dollar a year budget. A lot of that money, uh, other than workforce, does go to support uh, you know other community efforts and other mm-hmm. community organizations. We have, um, w- as you know from my discussion about the Joe and Joe Martinez Boulevard right. projects, um, you know we're looking to do uh, over. $180 million in capital projects this year. This is going to be the largest um, uh, capital uh, program that the county has ever seen. Um, take into account uh, 20 capital improvement projects um, that include the expansion of the Riverwalk, right. uh, Recreation Center on the Mesa, Runyon Field. This, I mean, I could go on and on, but the largesse of county government in terms of our budget and who we serve, um, you know, when we have... Um, when we level our budget like this will do, um, those those effects will, will not just be felt uh, by county commissioners and the budget no. and finance office. Yeah. It, 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 it will be felt by the entire community. And that's that, – well, I was just going to say that's important because, um, you know, Pueblo is a nonprofit town. Like we have a million nonprofits here yeah. that are doing really good work, and they rely on the county for a lot of their funding and that's support. Right. That's right. And, and, you know, if you just – the one beautiful thing about Pueblo – is if you need help, you can find it here. Mm-hmm. And this will completely impact that. Mm-hmm. Well, and the, you, you are not just an economic driver in the amount of people that you employ, but in those services, but also the other things that would draw that in, that would, all that would go away. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, we're, we're going to have a really hard time with this. You know, in my role as, as commissioner, one of the things when I look at our workforce that, you know, has really humbled me is when we give, um, you know, our, our, our awards of service. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those awards when I came in were uh, five, ten, fifty. I, I just received my five-year pin and going on my six-year as a county employee as well. But when you look at how long some of these folks have worked and dedicated themselves to serving this community – I was just with an employee in Pueblo West now, 41 years. Yeah. 41 years. Wow. We gave a uh, an award to uh, uh, Tootsie Wilhite. Uh, that was the longest I've ever seen. Fif- I believe it was 50 years, 50 or 51 wow. years. Wow. So she's worked for the county? That's right. And so when you have employees that have worked here for, for decades, certainly yeah. longer than I've, I've been around, um, I think what worries me is that, People don't work for an entity like that if they don't love where they work. Yeah, That's a very and, good point. And, and what I worry about a lot, especially in an environment where we're competing um, as hard as we can to attain employees, mm-hmm. uh, to bring in new employees as vacancies open up. I have 200-plus vacancies right now in our workforce. If you take resources away and you, sh- you start – chopping off, um, chopping departments in halves or in thirds, you know, to make all of this work, you're not going to have less work to do. You're going to have uh, the same amount and growing workloads with less resources to do yep. so. 
And I think who loses when that happens is, of course, the communities we talked about, but it's also the employees themselves, which was the spirit of this bill and who this bill is intending to help, that really lose out and I think do not have a better workplace uh, because of the bill. So, and not that you can read anybody else's mind, but especially you, um, your colleague and in, in Commissioner Greco, who's been such a, a, a great advocate for labor and for unions, because that's who he is. And, and every discussion, he makes sure that that's a priority. Um, I guess one is how is he feeling about this? Has he said anything? Um, and I don't want you to speak on his behalf, but at some point he's had to have said something about what yeah. he thinks about this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, Commissioner Griego, um, lifelong union member, uh, has brought a, a great perspective to our board when it comes to uh, workforce, employees, um, and, and how we uh, reward uh, good work as, as a board. Um, but he is, uh, along with you know, all, all three commissioners, he's, he's uh, just as concerned as I. Uh, he certainly is, is a major advocate of, of increasing uh, wages and benefits and so forth. But, uh, but yeah, he, he has the exact same concerns uh, that I've shared with, he, with you here today, and I, I say that with a lot of confidence. And, and I think what he told me the other day is that, you know, it's not that, um, it's not that the, the county per se isn't interested in, in hearing uh, employees' input or, or interested in even having unions um, because we have unions today right? Um, in, in county government that we've worked with for years and, and worked very well with. Um, I, I think it's just to him, uh, as he put it to me, you just have to be practical. Um, yeah. You have to understand how county government works. You have to understand uh, what these impacts will be. Uh, there might even be a way to uh, to modify the bill in a way such that uh, it doesn't absolutely level our budgets. But I, I don't know that that is, um, you know, falling on uh, reasonable ears at this time. Yeah. Reasonable ears is a good one. One last question before we go. Um, Brian brought this up earlier in our board meeting um, today. And by the way, we took a, a, a very aggressive uh, no uh, uh, oppose on this, and we're going to be doing everything we can um, to help get this bill killed if it does in fact get introduced. One of the things that, um, that Brian brought up was this idea of, um, what happens when, uh, the County clerk's office strikes? What, like if they were to go on strike, um, right during an election, I mean, I think so what if, so what if the sheriff's office strikes and and you don't have, uh, detention deputies in the jail or, or officers out on the streets? Um, you know, that, that's not a, it's not a county government I'm proud of as a, as a commissioner or a citizen. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, other than the financial impacts, the ability for us to provide services in clear snow and, and you know, a lot of these uh, services that are provided, um, folks don't realize until they're not provided, right. until yeah. they're not there. You know, there's, there's one other thing I want to be sure I cover before we, we conclude. It's that you know, a lot of people say when they look at these various county budgets and they say they're hundreds of millions of dollars, depend, you know, from county yeah. to county, yeah. uh, well, well, you can you can eat and realign, you know, $15, $20 million of that budget because you're $200 million uh, um, entity, essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. But it is not that simple. Um, I mean, if it were that simple, I, I don't know 
what the need for uh, county commissioners and elected officials right. and, and and budget and finance staff of our size would would really uh, need to exist for. Mm-hmm. Um, as you guys well know, I mean, there are so many uh, things that have to be held in reserve and money that uh, flows in that is for specific purposes. Um, you know, if you look at the projects, the capital projects I mentioned, those revenue sources cannot be used for personnel. Right. Uh, majority of those are, are allocated through ballot measures. They're tied to capital projects. Uh, they have a lot of restrictions. Um, so, you know, when I mentioned the overall size of county budgets and other commissioners do as well, um, you know, folks have to understand how incredibly complex and, and how constrained those resources are year in and year out already. And that's not a bad thing. There, there needs to be a, a really strict um, designation of funds. Um, and that's because that's what serves the taxpayers um, to do that. That's not, that's not something that, that is not a bad thing, but that I, doesn't I mean, that doesn't mean that um, you get to just decide that that's correct. out of hand. That's absolutely correct. And, and I think, you know, the the I, I don't care Democrat or Republican. It's it's an overall consensus that uh, all citizens want you to use uh, their tax paying monies uh, in a responsible way. They want you to be accountable. Right. Uh, that's why those monies are attached to specific purposes uh, for specific things, and that's why governments uh, government leaders work so hard to free up funds for projects and initiatives that they want to see better their community. And sometimes, as I can tell you, in terms of the jail on Joe Martinez Boulevard, those take years. Yes. Those take years in the making. So, And to be um, able to p- have to pivot so quickly on this. That's and correct. It would be, yeah. what, January 1st of 23? That's right. I think is what's in the bill currently. Yeah. So. Well, Garrison, thank you so much. And for all the great work that you do, um, we, we you hear it a lot, and I know you hear it a lot from from us for sure. But uh, as I think about who's actually serving and would have to carry this burden, um, I get a little protective and and a little angry about um, putting this on the the people that serve in our communities. Um, I think it's an unfair, it comes from an unfair place of that you're not doing your job, but I want you to know that we appreciate and we see what you what you do and the burden that you carry, um, and I'm I'm angry that we would even consider adding any kind of burden um, to our local leaders on this. But thank you so much for all the all the great work that you do. Well, we appreciate all of your support and your advocacy, and uh, just really proud to uh, be a member of your team and appreciate your uh, your support on this one. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thanks, Garrison. Oh, thanks, Tony, for joining us. This is such an important issue, and we're um, we're worried about it. And I know that you are too. Um, I want to make sure everybody knows um, Tony is uh, not only on the executive board for Action Twenty Two, but he is Los Animas County Commissioner. Um, he is an ag producer. Uh, himself and he's a beef producer um, and they've been really involved in I mean they're you and Connie are just totally you guys are the picture of what rural is and looks like for um, for the entire state but uh, so this bill that we're talking about that's supposed to be, uh, be getting introduced uh, sometime today we're hearing is a collective bargaining um, and it's for counties and we're going to hear from a lot of, of your um, 
a, a lot of your compadres, a lot of your um, county commissioners from around the state that are Action 22 people as well today. But I wanted to uh, visit with you a little bit about how, what you're feeling about this bill. And also, before we start, Tony is also a county commissioner. Did I say, I, I forgot to say he's a county commissioner? <laughs> I said Maybe all did. these really know, great things. Yeah, he's the Los Animas County Commissioner, um, and I'm a I'm a jack of all trades guy and master of none. We just we were if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So we try to be everywhere. No, that's so true. And and you came on the on Action Twenty Two board um, a couple of years ago, and since then you and I have gotten to be really good friends. You and Connie and I, and you've gotten to be real. We've all gotten to be really good friends, and we're all you know we. All, we're all in this fight together, um, but this one, this one's an interesting one. On um, it would force so this bill is collective bargaining. It would force the counties to adopt collective collective bargaining statewide. Yeah, and uh, first of all, I got to say that Los Animas County is unionized, but uh, there's a caveat in our contract that says that there would be no strikes that uh, that the union that we have here in Los Animas County could not, could not strike and basically hold the County hostage. And uh, because they realized how essential the uh, services that we provide to our community is. And uh, this collective bargaining bill would remove that. And, uh, I could see, and it and it says it in the in the bill that uh, that they could strike. And I'm looking at small counties like Phillips County or Sedgwick County or some of those counties that are small, and those services are essential to those uh, to those uh, counties that and their communities. That this would be devastating to those small counties because it's not. It's a mandate. It's not a. It's not a choice. Um, that's probably what rubs me the wrong way. Is uh, it's no longer to unionize and to go to the bargaining table. It's no more. It's no longer a a a choice that uh, that those individuals and those unions can do and sit down at the table and come to a an agreement that would work amicably for all involved now this would make it mandatory and uh, to me that's unconstitutional to to kill locally generated dollars and and which would effectively kill those those local programs that are essential like dhs our sheriff's department um yeah this is just a bad bill so there's already provisions in Colorado for um, ca- uh, counties or local governments to to allow union unionize. They allow, allows yes. them to do that. So that's yeah. already there. They can already do it if they if they want to. Yeah, it's a choice. It's a matter of choice. So this bill, what it would do is say you have to do this, right? Right. And wh- here's another thing: why are why are county workers and counties why are we being singled out? Um, they met. They met with a lot of public, a lot of pressure from the state public colleges and university leaders, and they came out in force and they opposed it, and now they're exempt. So why are counties not held to the same standard? 
That's a great question. We don't understand it at all. So you guys have already been through the process of, of unionizing in your county um, for your and um, it was it was a smart thing to keep that strike provision out. Um, so let me ask you, why was why did you feel that was important to keep the strike provision out? Well, we didn't do it. I mean, it, it was done many years ago by okay. by commissioners that were uh, much smarter than I, and they could see the writing on the wall and knew that, you know, this this is what would happen. For instance, uh, if if that provision hadn't been put in there, and they could have struck, say, during a blizzard, the road and bridge department, they would effectively been holding the the county hostage, the community hostage. And uh, um, they could see that that wasn't going to work. And uh, and the unions, yeah, we're not against unions. I mean, the unions have a, a valuable place in, in, you know, for what they do for the, for, the, for our workers. But it, uh, I lost my train of thought. Sorry, guys. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no okay. it's just the, um, that strike provision. That's a real sticking point, I think, um, for essential, uh, essential services. And, and Brian, you, we were having a discussion about this earlier and you, um, you brought up the part about, um, um, elections and um, county clerk's office, I thought was really important. Yeah, it, and yes, it, that was. It's you know not to be totally doom and gloom on it, but as we know, um, a lot of stuff is politically minded right now. And say you have an election, and the county clerk's office wants to go on strike, right? And that could interrupt the election and democratic process in a county. And and I'm talking from both sides. I'm not saying one yes. party or over the other. And it's just a possibility. And I'm looking for the, the bad in it, you know, like I said, trying not to be too doom and gloom, but it is a possibility. Yeah. Well, and it would be a, it would certainly um, enable um, some shadier, non so good people to weaponize um, the election process. And, and I think that's something that um, everybody's really trying hard to protect. So, Tony, um, just to finish up, we we did have an extra 22 board meeting this morning. Um, you're the vice chair, and you ran that board meeting, and we had a really robust conversation about this. Um, talk a little bit, if you'll talk a little bit about some of the other comments we heard and then what we decided on. Yeah, so there, there it, it was robust. That's, that's the correct word. Uh, uh, this is a nonpartisan this should be a nonpartisan concern and uh, action 22 being a nonpartisan group. Um, we had conversations from both entities, the reds and the blues that, uh, that were in opposition to this. And they gave multiple reasons why some of them we've already mentioned. And um, uh, the action 22 uh, arrived at a opposed position with um in, in was it in in its entirety sarah it was it was in its entirety yeah. there was there was nothing about this um the the positive parts of this bill are already they're they're already in place um right and and i think that was i think that was a really loud and clear that uh that um if they're able to do it and like Los Animas County, if they're able to do it um, in a productive way that actually serves 
both employees and the community, um, they have the option to do that already. Anything else um, in this bill would be redundant, I think. Um, and then the things that we don't like about this bill would be um, economically devastating. So, so yeah, we're opposing it. And, and it's, it's a difficult thing. I think that's the other part that we'll talk about with some of um, of the other commissioners that we're going to be visiting with today. Um, the, the, I think the big thing that concerned me was the lack of stakeholder, um, stakeholder input, especially with the, you guys are going to have to carry the water on this. Um, and you didn't, there weren't a lot, there wasn't adequate, if there was, it was inadequate as far as that stakeholder process. So you guys would have to deliver on it and you weren't, aren't going to be able to weigh in on. Well, in these unfunded mandates for a lot of smaller counties, uh, when when the unfunded mandates come down, especially to our little agriculture agriculture communities, uh, they'll be hit hard. I mean, with inflation at its current levels and climbing, they can't afford any any more unfunded mandates or this collective bargaining. I mean, uh, we're, we would be looking at employee layoffs. I say we. I mean, small rural rural uh, counties would be looking at employee layoffs and. Uh, and they, those would have to occur to hire specialized union HRs and county attorneys, along with the training of non-union supervisors and and how to manage a union environment. I mean, uh, all of those would be huge concerns for small communities. And that means that they would have to lower those essential services to our communities like DHS and, and those programs. Well, um, I know that these smaller counties are just rolling in money right now, right? They have <laughs> so much money, they don't know what to do with it, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's, and it's going to keep on rolling in, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, it's, and, I, and I, you know what? Um, I got, God bless you guys for, for doing the hard work because uh, here in the next week or 10 days, um, you're going to see an onslaught of bills that are going to be dropped in your lap and, and uh, it really angers me that we're not going to be able to uh, to effectively weed out the bad ones when you get a ton of them that land in your lap and you have to take positions on those. So uh, God bless you guys for taking the hard stance. Thanks. Thanks, Tony. All right. We'll talk to you soon. And we're going to um, have so, uh, several other interviews with uh, county commissioners from around the Action 22 area. But we appreciate you, Tony, and everything that you do for our communities. Super, and thank you for the opportunity. All right, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Tony. Bye. So we're sitting here with the county commissioner for Fremont County and former Senate President Kevin Grantham. And then, of course, uh, Commissioner Grantham is also on the Action 22 Board of Directors. So you already have heard on this particular episode from other county commissioners with regard to the bill that's going to be introduced today. We understand uh, that is or would force collective bargaining onto all the counties in Colorado. So, uh, Kevin, can you um, give us just a little bit of background? You were a, you're a recovering legislator, so you know everybody here. You know Colorado fiscal policy. You know what can and can't. I mean, you were – how many years were you president of the Senate? Uh, two years. Two years. Okay. So – and I tell people it takes two years of being in the thick of things to get uh, Colorado fiscal policy figured out. Um, so tell me, uh, 
when you tell me how you heard about that this bill was going to be just about county, um, just about the counties. Oh, well, when did I first hear about that? Yeah. Um, well, that wasn't even really official until this morning, and it's even technically not official yet. Right, because it hasn't been uh, officially introduced, right? Right, and it may be introduced even as late as tomorrow, as far as we know. And it still has a potential of not being introduced. As long as it's not introduced yet, then we still have a chance for it to be uh, killed prior to that. Right. Um, But it's always been in the rumor mill that we were always the end target for this. And so, you know, it's been uh, bantied about, I guess, for the last month or so that we may end up with just counties. And even as recent as yesterday, I think even as I was talking to you yesterday, um, the colleges, the universities, higher ed, finally got uh, removed from the latest draft. And, you know, I... I made the point this morning because uh, a a reporter asked, you know, about all of these other entities, including municipalities and higher ed and others that were part of the original bill and the ongoing drafts and then miraculously disappeared Hmm. from (laughs) from consideration. Um, It begs the question, why? Uh, Why were they in there to begin with? Why did they get left out? Um, it, it begs the question, if it's not a good deal for them, why is it a good deal for the county? Um, the reality is they all got out because they pressured uh, the unions and the bill sponsors to, to let them off the hook because it would cost them uh, a catastrophic amount of money uh, that they just simply don't have. Um, higher ed, I'm sure, made that case, and uh, kudos to them for getting themselves excluded. Uh, but it begs the question, if it's expensive for them, it's going to be expensive for us. So why do it at all? Um, we'll, we'll wait and probably hear crickets on uh, waiting for the answer for that. But uh, I think it's an important question to be asked and answered that uh, if it's good enough for us, it's good enough for everybody. If it's bad enough for everybody else, it's bad enough for us too. So does that make sense? No, no, yeah. it makes total sense, yeah, and and we're we're right on on task with you on that one. Uh, I think the other thing I was um, interested in learning from you is a con- a great concern I've had about not just this bill, but a lot of other bills that are happening right now with regard to the stakeholder process. So as Senate president, you did a good job of driving sure driving that um, home. I remember there was uh, a number of times that you said if the stakeholder process and process didn't fit your um, what you thought it should happen, you weren't going to let it move forward. Um, and so that the buck stopped there with you. What do you? What would you uh, rate the stakeholder process on this particular bill with regards to um, their communication with uh, counties? Well, it probably doesn't register on the uh, the processometer. Um, it, at least as far as collective bargaining goes, the there has been zero stakeholder involvement um, in process with the counties. Uh, we are we are shouting from the outside to the inside on this one, and uh, we're not being heard so far. Uh, 
and you've watched and you've witnessed the ones that have gotten themselves excluded from the bill being in the same position and doing the shouting and then finally being heard. And now we're the ones left holding back. Um, so again, kudos to them for being able to get out, but nobody was in on this. This was written from the, the lofty heights, the ivory towers of union dominated um, smoke filled back rooms. Gotcha. Gotcha. So for Fremont County, and we we heard from um, we heard from Tony Haas. We've heard from uh, Commissioner Stan Vanderwerf, who was uh, with us a few minutes ago. We're going to hear from um, uh, Bill Kanda a little bit later, and then we're also going to hear from Garrison Ortiz out of Pueblo. What's it going to cost Fremont County? Well, that's a great question. Um, we're looking right now with 358 current employees in Fremont County. Um, and given our current budget and the current pay structure, we're looking at a potential of a six to a $9 million hit. Um, that's, that's a potential hit. Mm -hmm. And if that happens in a County of the size of Fremont, then we are looking at, uh, basically a loss of upwards of a quarter of our workforce in the County. And when you lose a quarter of the workforce in a county, you're looking at the potential for um, loss of more than a quarter of the services being provided. We start, I mean, we'll see a snowball effect when that happens. When we start talking about cutting six to $9 million in services and payroll, um, we're talking about increased response times. We're talking about fewer patrols. We're talking about roads that aren't getting graded. We're talking about roads that aren't getting plowed. Uh, we're talking about um, loss of services in Department of Health, Department of Human Services. We're human services. I mean, uh, this, is, this is the one function of government, um, maybe except for grading roads at the county level. The human services is the one function of government. This Republican can can wholeheartedly get behind and say that is the one place where government is intervening to help children who are being mistreated, uh, abused, um, and this is going to directly affect our ability to help those children. And folks that put us put those kids in harm's way should honestly be ashamed of themselves because this is where this is going to lead to. I don't want to, I don't want to be too alarmist on this stuff, but it it frightens me um, knowing the jeopardy that we will be putting people in um, with these kind of cuts that we're going to have to make if collective bargaining goes through. One uh, one of the commissioners we just had on mentioned that if they just put their entire road and bridge budget towards this, it wouldn't even be half of the cost. That's how impactful it is. Right. And, and I think we're probably close to the same position. Um, we could probably spread it across, but it's going to negatively affect every department. Mm -hmm. um, and who does that negatively affect? It negatively affects the taxpayers and the citizens of the community because they're the ones that rely on those services. We look at long lines at the motor vehicles department at the clerk's office in Fremont County. Um, those lines will not get shorter <laughs> with this. Uh, there will be fewer people sitting at those desks. 
there will be fewer hours that people will be a bit of able to access those services within the building um, across the board. It's not, that's the more retail aspect of what we <clears throat> have going on in county government at the motor vehicles. <clears throat> Excuse me. But uh, this will obviously drastically affect everything across the board. So one last question for you before we let you go. And I, um, I know that you're up there right now making some noise about it. And if there's any um, important movement, you'll let us know. Uh, what's been the tone? I guess I'm asking the bipartisan question. Um, there are other county commissioners up there with you. Is it just Republicans that are making a uh, loud noise about this? Or is it uh, Republican and Democrat county commissioners? Uh, it's both. And so there is a bipartisan coalition because um, the kind of cost that this will impose upon counties doesn't affect just Republican counties. Mm-hmm. Um, this affects every county. And the the Democrat counties, especially the Democrat mountain counties or the Democrat front range counties, recognize this. Now, when I say they recognize it, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're all on board with us trying to kill it. Um, there are some that like the idea of forced unionization. And so they are on the side of taking away that element of control and local control from rural counties. Um, be that as it may, there's still only, I think, two counties that have collective bargaining uh, across the board in the state of Colorado out of 64. Um, so 62 counties have not chosen to go down that path, but now the state legislature wants to make it mandatory for everybody Everybody since they haven't made the right choice. And Los Angeles County is one of those two that are already there. So we heard from Tony Haas earlier, and he said that the key thing uh, about that is that there was no, um, there was a no strike provision. So they can't do, um, they can't strike on that. Um, And it happened years and years and years ago, but this would provide for, uh, the ability for um, these essential workers to strike, correct? Well, it's a uh, we're still waiting to to see what the final uh, version is that they introduce when it comes to the no strike clause because the most recent version did have some elements of a no strike provision, uh, which would be helpful. But um, I don't understand all the nuances to it. To be perfectly honest, guys. Um, so I'm, we're going to have to wait and see on what that is, uh, in what is actually introduced because it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be from what I understand. Um, we actually, you know, if we're going to turn a, a, an awful bill into just a slightly less awful bill, we need a no strike provision. Um, the one that is in there doesn't do it actually. And is not what, uh, is not what would be, would be needed. Uh, we would still rather see no bill than the current bill. Yep, absolutely. So um, you weren't able to be on the board call this morning, but we just wanted to let you know that uh, we had a very um, intense, robust conversation, and um, we the, it was the decision was made to even though we don't take position until it is um, until it's introduced, we vehemently oppose this once it is introduced. So um, in any form. In any form, yeah. in any form. Right. So we're Good. not. We didn't Thank do you. the. We didn't do the amendment provision or anything like that that we would normally do. But um, Action Twenty Two is is gonna. 
we're, we've got to, as much as we can do to have our county commissioners back on this one because we know it's not good. There's nothing redeemable about this bill so far that we've seen. Well, I appreciate that, and all the counties certainly do as well. And uh, we'll be this will be a very fast-moving process like it always happens at the end of the session every year. Um, they could introduce this today or tomorrow, and it could be in committee as soon as Monday. Yeah. So, so we'll be. I'll be up there on Monday for sure. Um, you know, if the, if it's in committee on Monday, we'll be. I'll be up there for sure. We're going to try to get this voice, uh, especially because of the the lack of the stakeholder process. We're going to try to um, utilize this. So we appreciate you taking the time with us. Please say hello to uh, Mike Beasley while you're up there for us, and and I'm sure I'm going to be talking to him a little bit later and. Um, today. I, I did do that. I ran into him this morning. And so that was a, a he, good run in. He's a big fan of yours. <laughs> oh, we've worked together for a long time. Yep. So thank you. All right. Well, thank you, Kevin. And we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks guys. Appreciate it. Okay. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. So we are here with Commissioner for El Paso County, Stan Vanderwerth. Um, he is also, uh, he sits on a number of committees and uh, different uh, seats he has around the state. But he's one of the most um, vocal and prominent county commissioners in Colorado. And we also have the pleasure of having him on the Action 22 Board of Directors. And so we had, uh, as you've heard in some of the other interviews that we're giving, um, we're wanting to talk a little bit more, take a little bit deeper dive on the bill that we understand is going to be introduced today that would force counties uh, to start implementing collateral or uh, collective bargaining. I'm sorry, collective bargaining. So <laughs> thanks so much for coming down. You came all the way down from Colorado Springs I did. just to do that. We appreciate you doing that because um, we wanted to get this message out in a big hurry. And of course, it's that important to you. Well, thank you very much for having me here. And I want to express my appreciation for the Action 22 team for an opportunity to speak uh, to the residents and the citizens of Colorado and anybody else that's willing to listen. Absolutely. And we definitely have a challenge here in the state of Colorado with regard to to this bill that looks like it's uh, going to be introduced today with regard to collective bargaining. Right. And that's forced unionization. That is not um, permissive unionization based on local uh, uh, issues that would force every county in Colorado to unionize. So, um, of course, uh, there there is uh, provisions for... Um, I mean, that's already in place. They, if a local government, if a county, or they can do that now, right? I mean, that's exactly right. Uh, we actually have a few uh, counties. It's a very small number uh, that have uh, unionized already, um, but that really should be a local choice based right. on the specific conditions of a local area, and it should not be imposed by the state government on everybody because unionization doesn't uh, doesn't necessarily work everywhere in the in the state. So I wanted to ask you, one of the things that bothers me about this bill was uh, the lack of stakeholder input. So as far as you're concerned, how did you, how did you get to know about this bill? Well, we have a, a legislative team in El Paso County that uh, alerts uh, all of us, including the county commissioners, about things that may be coming uh, before the legislature. So we've known about the possibility of this bill for some time. Uh, maybe about a month or so, um, but it had not yet been introduced. And I do find it ironic that it's being introduced at the very end of the legislative session, which actually uh, limits the ability for public input and also uh, agency input from around the state. 
Uh, and I believe that that was done on purpose to try to limit that input. And that speaks to your question about stakeholdering. Right. Uh, in absolute clear terms, in my mind, I do not believe sufficient stakeholdering has taken place on this bill. So I haven't gotten into this with uh, with other people, but I realized uh, last night as I was talking about this with my mom, of course, she didn't really understand what a uh, stakeholder process was, or she didn't understand what was meant by that. So it made me think that not your average citizen even knows what that means or why uh, we're so stressed about the fact that that didn't happen here. Mm-hmm. Well, um, it's, it's very important. I mean, before uh, the state imposes legislation, uh, a typical process is stakeholdering. And what that means is that citizens uh, and also uh, agencies that might have an interest in a particular bill have an opportunity mm-hmm. to speak at length with the legislators that are considering a piece of legislation. Uh, I can tell you that I, I do not believe that uh, the county commissioners and the counties have had much of an opportunity to do that stakeholdering. And that, in, in many respects, is where this bill, this bill is directed. And, you know, it's going to cost a, an enormous amount of money uh, for all of the counties. And I'm happy to talk a little bit. Yeah, more I was just going to ask yeah, you, what is the biggest concern you have? And I know, I mean, I know the answer is the is how much it's actually going to cost. So would you take yes. a dive? Now, um, for, because we have listeners all over the country. I mean, of course, Colorado, all over the country. And then we have listenership all over the world, mm-hmm. actually, through uh, Voice America Network. Um, would you uh, just give a quick little, the size and El Paso County and who they are. Just will you talk a little bit about Absolutely. your county before you get yeah. into that? So uh, El so Paso County is the largest county in the state of Colorado by population at mm-hmm. 737,000 people. It's actually larger than Denver County. Uh, the city of Colorado Springs is embedded within El Paso County. Uh, and um, when we, we did a, we've done a very careful cost analysis of what this bill would cost the taxpayers of El Paso County. And this is just El Paso County alone. Uh, and uh, be, uh, the way the bill as presently written, it has a fair, fairly expensive overhead uh, set of provisions that are required. Uh, and then also um, it would uh, cost us uh, a, a lot of money in increased uh, salaries. Uh, so between those two, we're looking at a $25 million per year cost Possibly much higher, but at least wow. $25 million. But at minimum, it would County. be $25 million. At minimum, it would be $25 million. And that's based on scientific studies uh, that we uh, did research on about, you know, when, when a public agency unionizes, what ultimately happens to their, uh, their labor costs. So in a, in a state, in every, most people are aware in Colorado what Tabor is, but in a Tabor state with the Colorado fiscal policy, the way it is, what is that going to mean for your budget? Right. I appreciate that very much. So it's, um, it, it's very much of a squeeze that's very, very difficult. Uh, and I do want to mention that, you know, just in El Paso County, a $25 million bill, but when you take into account 64 counties in, in Colorado, you're looking at hundreds of millions of dollars that would have to be diverted away from services that local government provides to its citizens today. And we do so much in that arena that many people maybe don't really think much about, but we pave all of our local roads. You know, we fix potholes. Uh, we plow roads uh, when there's snow in the winter. Uh, we run parks. We, our sheriff's office is funded with our budget. And so this $25 million that would have to be devoted to this bill, if it passes, uh, would have to be diverted from other programs because we run a pretty lean uh, county. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We just don't have $25 million lying around. Well, and, and because of Colorado fiscal policy, you can neither 
raise taxes to cover this, nor right. can you go into debt to cover this, correct? So uh, in order to raise taxes, we have to take that to a vote of the citizens and ask their permission to raise taxes. But uh, just last year, we asked for permission to reset our Tabor limit. That's mm-hmm. a complicated thing in the state of Colorado. And the voters in El Paso County turns that down. Yeah. So what it would likely happen is uh, uh, this would force us to do something, to cut services or ask for a tax increase. To ask for a tax increase, we'd have to go to a vote of the citizens, and they're already not interested in, in their taxes being larger. And why would we do that at this point in time when people are still trying to recover from COVID? We've got many uh, um, business owners that threw their life savings into their, into their uh, restaurants and other companies in order to survive through COVID, and now – we would be faced with a tax increase, you know, that's just not acceptable. Yeah. Um, and, and then the voters would have the right to turn it down. So if we were to go through that, ask for a tax increase, the voters turn it down, then we can't increase the revenue, uh, the revenues from our citizens. And this bill takes $25 million out of our general revenue fund. Uh, and that means we have to cut something else. There's no other option at that point. And, right. that, and that's something that, you know, Tony Haas, commissioner from Los Animas County, got into um, what he brought up was like, you're not going to cut fire. You're not going to cut safety, correct? So you're going to go to more of the social net side of things. And in a time after the pandemic where people are unemployed, having a hard time finding a house, where do you cut? Would it be social services? Would it be these agencies that are just going to hurt people more in the long run? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that's even more complicated than just mm-hmm. that because uh, we have a Department of Human Services in El Paso County. We have 600 people in there. The vast majority of their work is done with uh, federal dollars that come that are passed through down to the county. Uh, and um, uh, they would be allowed to uh, possibly strike as well. They would be mm-hmm. subject to this as well. Uh, and uh, those funds are always directed. They have to be placed against this, or they have to be placed yep. against that. So we can't take federal money uh, out of the federal budget dollars we receive and use it to pay for the collective bargaining. We have to take that out of locally generated revenues. Wow. So what that would mean is uh, we wouldn't be able to, most likely we wouldn't be able to cut uh, human services uh, functions. Uh, We have to cut it out of uh, programs that are exclusively funded by local dollars. And when you talk about, let's say, if you go down the path of, well, we won't cut public safety, Mm -hmm. right? Well, then we could close our parks, but our entire parks budget in El Paso County is $7 million a year, and this is $25 million. So close so all the parks and you don't Close even all get the parks, there. and that's not enough. Yeah. So you have to go to other places, and that means uh, we have to cut uh, road budget. Mm-hmm. That's the one thing remaining that uh, uh, is uh, driven by locally derived uh, uh, taxes. And uh, our, um, a $25 million cut in our budget, if we were to, to place that completely against our road budget, that's about 70% of our entire road budget. Wow. So it would be a drastic decrease in fixing potholes, uh, repaving roads. And in fact, uh, we've got some statistics. Um, that would cause us to reduce our paving, uh, reduce, it would be one of these different choices. It's not all of them included, but uh, that $25 million a year represents 20, 20, uh, 82 miles of repaving or it represents 225 miles of um, gravel repair, you know, gravel road repair. Uh, it also rep- uh, could represent um, over $5 million in pothole repairs. Wow. And uh, f- uh, 5 million pothole repairs, excuse me. And, and, you know, 
rural Colorado, El Paso County included, we're struggling with our roads right now, even yeah. keeping up as is. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it wasn't that the one of the number one complaints of people, I think, two years ago was the quality of our roads. And I know here in Pueblo it is. And that's gone. Well, it would be gone if this bill were to be passed. Yeah. Um, and, and that's uh, very, very difficult. And we just, we just recently, you know, have had a huge inflation increase. Oh and the gosh, cost yeah. of road repairs, the materials it's, for road repairs has gone way up. So the El Paso County commissioners added an extra $10 million. We had to squeeze and scrimp and everything else. We put another $10 million into our road budget, and all of it got consumed by increased costs. So we're not actually adding to road Road repairs. We're paying for the increased inflation and the increased uh, cost of things like tar and other materials. So uh, we did that. If we hadn't have done that, we would have already been reducing from from uh, our what we were hoping to do. And this twenty five million dollar addition additional cost to that, it would be devastating for El Paso County. Well, I think that answers the whole stakeholder question, right? Yep. If this actually had happened, I don't know that they would have been able to really justify even introducing this bill if the actual stakeholder process would have happened. So, um, Commissioner, thank you so much for being with us. I know you're on your way up to Denver um, to see the governor. I'm sure this will be one of the things that you'll be talking about with him. Mm -hmm. We appreciate all that you do for the communities um, and especially in the Action 22 footprint. So thanks for being with us. You're very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity and uh, thank you to to your listeners. And uh, we look forward to um, stopping this bill and, and, and hopefully... It will not pass through the legislature, but I can tell you that if it does pass through the legislature, I am asking the governor of Colorado uh, to veto it. Okay. Well, and that's on the record now. We appreciate that, too. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Yep. Take care. So our conversation now is with Bill Kanda, who is county commissioner for Custer County. And Custer County is one of our smaller counties. Uh, And so that means that uh, two things. One they don't have as big a voice as some of the other counties and number, but number two, the impact on them is, is the same or greater. Uh, so anything that happens for these smaller communities happens in added measure. So Bill, uh, thanks for sitting down and talking with us today. Um, you got word yesterday and it may have been me. I don't know. How do you, how did you find out that, uh, that this was going on? Well, there, I'll tell you what, I could hear the scream all the way across the ocean. <laughs> and it matters that much to me that I'm cutting part into my vacation for the uh, Easter break here because it matters. Uh, I appreciate that. that. Significant impact. And you said, uh, you know, we are small, but we're mighty. And we're mighty mad, too, about this and that it is an impact. As well, you should be. So as county commissioner for Custer County, you know, we have... Um, would you just describe the size and what you're, what's going on over there? Okay, so Custer County only has 4,500 citizens. Uh, of that, uh, we, uh, we have about 3,000 voters roughly, but the citizens that vote are paying the bill for us to execute the services. Uh, those services are executed by only 91 employees. That's what we have currently. Uh, the budget, our county budget is uh, $4.5 million just for the budget for it. And the uh, salaries to execute those services that are paid for uh, are about 4.6. So we've got a $9.1 million but actual dollars that the taxpayers put in the bill for. But we have an appetite for about $7 million more because that, that we need in order to execute 
uh, everything that is required, including the health and human services, those kinds of things, the airport, other things that we go after grants. So we share a lot of the cost with the state in grants and other services. Uh, right. So our total need is about well, $17 million. And last I heard, Sarah, the uh, taxpayers have to vote on things. And we are have a total transparent uh, process by which we say we need a new courtroom and we go to them and do you want to increase your tax base to get it? We need a new grader, uh, those kinds of things. Uh, we look for grants to help augment that in order to get those things done. And we have to, uh, we have to actually grade a road. If you grade, started grading today and you ended up in Albuquerque with your graders, that's how many roads we have to maintain with that small workforce, just with just that one case. So let me ask you with the 91 um, in your workforce, um, are you the largest employer in Custer County? Good question. And yes, we are. Uh, uh, well, we're, 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 we used to be the only employer in a lot of cases. Right. Uh, but we are uh, matched in some cases. But I'll tell you what we do. do. We, we are paying the highest minimum starting wage in, because we care about our people. And we're starting off a minimum wage of about 17 and a half bucks. So it's a couple bucks above the, the minimum. And then we try to keep a commensurate amount of money as we get as they people want to progress because we want to keep our employees. We want to make a job so somebody will want to stay. And we have to. We have other issues like other counties do. We have housing shortages. Uh, cost of housing is too much. Uh, and so uh, this is going to put another huge burden. And I can get into that here in a minute. Yeah. So let me ask you before we get into that because I do want to hear about that. Um, what are the primary services that you do provide? there um, in Custer County. So roads, 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 bridges, of course, like, uh, like all counties do. We have an airport as well, county airport that we have put together uh, through the last 15 years is is slowly growing. And the Colorado transportation uh, department has helped us a bunch, the aeronautics division. Uh, There's grants that we've been after that. And plus private donations, believe it or not, we've had, we've been lucky to get a lot of that. Public health is a big one. Pandemic uh, really brought that to light. And uh, we have, uh, bar none, probably uh, one of the best public health uh, services here uh, in this part, in this region today. Um, so those kinds of services, uh, health, uh, we, we've got courts to maintain, uh, the uh, health and human services. Uh, we, we have the highest pop per capita uh, of veterans in our county in the nation. Believe. I was hoping you would talk. I was hoping that you would talk about that. So I want to repeat that, guys. In Custer County has the highest per capita in the nation for veterans. That's right. Highest per capita. So um, all of the, and you know it, you feel it um, when you're over there. So what's what would this cost? I know that you're on vacation. I know that you made some phone calls after I asked you. Yesterday, what is this going to cost your county? Oh, man, we, uh, we did quick analysis uh, with what we've got. And these are rough, but uh, as accurate as, as we could be. And of that amount, the impact initially, just in our operating cost, would be an additional 182000 bucks. Doesn't sound like a lot because we're a small county. But you add to that an additional $112,000 uh, roughly with an impact of about two hundred fifty dollars to $300,000 just on the annual operating, the other amount that you add is the loss in productivity um, because of the, the other duties they would perform as a, uh, if you did unionize and that kind of thing. 
And that doesn't include the cost to initially get the start unionization. It would be about a 1.5 million dollar cost to unionize. To it. Where's that money coming from? Uh, is you know so, and that's a double whammy too because not only would it impact the citizens now, but we'd either lose a service, reduce some workforce on the human resources or resources side, could be in the courts support could be in the road and bridge, you know, could do with less people try to try to maintain it. And then on top of that, the state would have to share more with us because we're going to have to have more grants to make up the difference. So it's a double whammy. And that impacts not just the citizens of the county, but the citizens of the state as well. You know, you're the first one to bring up that point. Um, I hadn't really thought about the shared burden with the state. Uh, we had talked a little bit about, um, because of Tabor and you, and you uh, hit on that, um, that there's, there's no place else. You can't go into debt to cover this. You can't raise taxes to cover this. Um, and raising taxes in Colorado is, is problematic, um, as well as should be. In, in my opinion, this is the opinion of Sarah, that it should be difficult to raise taxes um, in in Colorado, but that that hamstrings you in ways that um, exacerbates this is the issue for you. It does, and we can't afford to lose our our younger population either. We our income. We are one of the few counties in the nation that are right to ranch uh, uh, is, is the use of the land. Anything above that, you have to have a permit to do. So, we, in order to put a commercial business anywhere, you need a permit. So we've got agribusiness, tourism, and we've got some mining you know, still with some resources that we could, could do. But uh, without that and without having any people want to be able to live here and to work here and to have the services provided and make it possible for them to do, uh, we need uh, to be able to provide those services. And, uh, and without it, uh, you know, our population would turn into a retirement population that has no recurring um, uh, generational ability to have for a kid to graduate, go to college, and then come back and do a job here. If we don't perform the best we can and produce the um, serve more than just a service industry, we need to produce a product. Right. And we to be able to do that. We need people to do that. We can't run them off by running taxes up and making it hard to live. Correct. No, I agree with you. So. One of the themes that uh, with the other conversations that we've had today is uh, the lack of stakeholder um, input in this. This would land on you as county commissioners. It would land on you starting, according to the language we've seen, land on you January 1st, 2023. So you'd have a few months to get this figured out, basically. Um, what, uh, what, if any questions or, or stakeholder, anything, um, were you asked? Not a darn thing. That's why I, I, I said that it was worth sitting down with you today because uh, what did they do? They're finalizing the language uh, today and yesterday, and, uh, and now we're going to hear a vote on it. Well, there's been no input from anybody that we've seen. Yeah, uh, so, so it's our understanding if they introduce, and it's 412. Um, on a Friday afternoon, um, we were told yesterday that they were going to be introducing it today. That was the first time that anybody had seen the language. They kept it pretty close to the vest. 
um, a lot of your um, compadres and your colleagues from um, other counties were in Denver today. Um, there was a press conference today. Um, and so what we're hearing now, and, and I don't know how that's changed at all. Um, I'm going to make some phone calls here in a few minutes, but um, it's there. It will be introduced today if it happens. And then um, they will have it in committee on Monday. I don't understand how they can even think like that. It's just crazy because um, the impact is so significant. An unfunded mandate uh, out of nowhere has a lot of unintended consequences. I don't know what that really means to us between now and January. How, how are we going to come up with a million and a half bucks just to start the process? And how are we going to cost out the wages to increase to um, our operating expenses that would be uh, impacted by that? It, it, it can't do it. It's impossible. And so what, what does that mean? We, I'll tell you what it means to me. I work for the citizens of Custer County and I work and, and pay taxes in the state and we can't afford to have this happen uh, without running it by the citizens. If, if this was a, the right thing to do across the state, why didn't they do it? Why didn't we hear about it? Why isn't the state putting out this out and having it on the TV, on the radio stations and, and telling us this is necessary because my gosh, it, it's going to impact these poor workers on the county level, and they need more money. You know, uh, I'll we tell don't you, have a problem I, with our our employees. We have a great relationship with them. Don't want to break it. Don't want to lose it. This has to be defeated. It has to stop. It has to to not pass. Period. I'm so glad you said it that way. I was I was um, you know doing the mental ranch and rave as I was driving home last night um, about this, and I had that same thought. And I was like, I can't prompt any of these guys to say this, but gosh, I hope somebody says, if this was such a, such a great thing, then why are they waiting till the end? Why are they being shady about it? Why hasn't the, the stakeholder process um, gone on with those who would have to carry the burden? Why on five o'clock in the afternoon on Friday is this now all of a sudden got to be passed on Monday at three? I wish I could answer that. I really do. But it goes back to who's actually being served here. That's so, um, and we need to, we need to recognize those who are serving. And these Colorado. little, these, guess what? Where's the food coming from for the state of Colorado? It's in the little counties, the rural counties, the farmers, the ranchers, the uh, people who are producing the, the oil and gas that we should be producing. Uh, you can't impact it like this and have it, um, to what end? Yeah. So in the Action 22 footprint, and you know this because you sit on the Action 22 board, in the Action 22 footprint, we have the largest and the smallest counties, yeah. both geographically and by population. Um, so Los Animas County is the biggest geographically. Um, uh, Pueblo, or, um, El Paso County is the largest by population. Um, I think um, Custer is the smallest by um, geographically and Mineral County is just right behind you um, in uh, the smallest. They have just, I think that they have like 4,000, you have 4,500, they have 4,000. So this is, and so we've heard from both sides of this, size and not size, um, contributor to the state, help with the state, all of that. 
we're hoping that um, by having these conversations that, um, and we don't want to have, we don't want to have to carry that, but this right here is the stakeholder process that didn't happen. Yeah, it is. And so, it's great. Glad you're, you're working hard and it's important that Action 22 makes a big, big cry well, here. I well, hope the yeah. rest of these uh, committees are doing the same thing, aren't they, Sarah? I hope so. Um, I, I th I'm sure that they are. I'm sure that they are. Um, I know that um, Club 20 and Pro 15 um, both are rallying um, to, to try to get this stopped. Um, and so, you know, I can say that they both said that, you know, their, their committees or their boards um, have, have voted to oppose this. We, of course, this morning voted to adamantly oppose this in any form. And that's pretty strong language coming from us that we're not, we don't even want to consider, this board said that they don't even want to consider amendments or anything like that. That almost never happens with Action 22. We're always willing to find some consensus. Um, almost always, this is the first time in a long time that, that, that they, this board said, nope, there's no form of this that we're going to be okay with. This is that's anything, and, I, and I've seen a lot of email traffic uh, that has come over uh, my computer, even even on the beach out here in Hawaii. That, we all feel uh, real bad for you right now. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to get out there. The surf is going to knock over my mai tai pretty soon. But, <laughs> but anyway, uh, a lot of commissioners are squealing. It's not just us. Uh, that's right. That's right. Too. they're yeah. all over the state. Well, County we was. And it's bipartisan too, is what we're hearing. It which, is bipartisan. Which says a lot on this. So, it's well, got to be defeated, Sarah. I know. Bill, get out there, enjoy that sun and, and sand a little bit for me, because um, I'm in Colorado where it's dry and windy. And so today, um, and we're we're getting ready to mix it up again. But I appreciate so much um, what you do for your community and how you serve. Um, and for your service on the Action 22 board and your willingness to, um, to take some time out of uh, your vacation. Um, when, I mean, you didn't have to and you shouldn't have to, but I appreciate you taking the time today. Thank you. And I wouldn't have missed it for a million bucks. Thanks. Well, thanks. Thanks, Bill. Um, have a great vacation and a safe trip back. Okay. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Making Action Happen. I'm Sarah Blackhurst. And I'm Brian McKay. And we've got Chancellor Joe Garcia with us today. He is the Chancellor of Colorado Community College System, and he is uh, visiting with us a little bit today about some concerns and the impacts of the upcoming bill on collective bargaining. So thanks so much for being with us, Chancellor. We appreciate it. Um, we have listeners, um, of course, all over the state, but also all over the country and in other countries. So would you start by just introducing Introducing yourself and who you are and, and what you do for Colorado, not just the community colleges, but as a whole. Well, thank you, Sarah. I am the uh, chancellor of the community college system in Colorado, which consists of 13 colleges in about 38 locations in every corner of Colorado. We serve about 120,000 undergraduate students every year and about 100,000 high school students every year. And our mission is to provide high quality low-cost education. And the people we serve, and this is really important, tend to be first-generation and low-income students. And we really have to be focused on affordability and keeping tuition low as we, with everything we do. So for the majority of 
if I understand this right, for the majority of our uh, rural communities, um, the community college system is the first stop. So those who are getting higher education in our rural communities are using the community college system, correct? That's true. We're the only campuses that typically have a physical location in many rural communities. So um, post-pandemic and everything that's going on, there's been really not, you guys, it's been really smooth for community colleges. You guys are doing great. There's no problems, right? (laughs) Not quite. (laughs) Uh, We've continued to deliver uh, instruction. We've done a lot of it online over the last two years. That's something we were used to. We've done that in the past. It's challenging, though, for many of our students who often don't have access either to high-speed internet or even the devices necessary so that they can download assignments and upload their work. So it's been challenging for our students and we've lost a lot of students. And this is true for community colleges nationally. It's been a huge, huge problem in Colorado, I know. Um, So we work closely with a lot of your college presidents who are some of the most dynamic and amazing people. Um, We have some of on on our board. We work closely with them. And so we have a really good connection with them. So, um, and I sit on Dr. Patty Orjavik's community advisory board um, for Pueblo Community College. And she is the one that first came to me with um, deep, deep concerns about a collective bargaining bill that's coming up. So I know that uh, right now that what's left in the bill, as far as we know, it hasn't been introduced yet, but um, it would affect in particular um, counties and community or and higher ed, both of them. And we've gotten some pretty alarming numbers on the impacts of that. Can you uh, unpack a little bit on what that's going to look like for community colleges? Absolutely. But first, let me preface my comments by saying we know that our faculty, our staff, our administrators, all of our employees are the most valuable assets we have when it comes to delivering the services and the instruction that our students need. We also know that our many of our faculty, many of our administrators are underpaid compared to their national peers. That's the reality. We don't like that any more than they do because we run the risk of losing our very best employees. We need them. We would love to be able to pay them more to hang on to them and to be able to attract and retain high quality employees. That is absolutely true. Collective bargaining doesn't concern us because it would allow employees to have a stronger voice. Frankly, we want them to have a strong voice and they currently do, Uh but we also have certain resource constraints. If we want to pay our employees more, we have to have more money. And the only place we can get more money is frankly from our students through increasing tuition because we only get money really from two sources, the state general fund and student tuition. And when that general fund isn't going up, but expenses do, then tuition has to go up. That's our big concern. So in the last um, little bit, I know that some of the community colleges have, um, there's been, you've had to riff in a few, there's been uh, programs that you've had to shut down. Um, This is across the board, but You've also, the big part of that you already uh, alluded to is um, reduction in in your enrollment numbers. Are there any projections that you have on that, that that's going to go up anytime soon? No, it really does not look promising for a lot of reasons. First, we are down about 10% over the last two years. And so when you're down 10% in uh, enrollments, you're down 
10% in tuition revenue. Mm -hmm. That's a significant hit. If you don't also reduce your expenses, you're going to overspend. And again, most of our budget goes to personnel costs. That's why we have to look very carefully at every single employee, every single program, and determine what's really critical to our ability to deliver on our mission. And if it's not, then we need to look at cutting it in order to increase our efficiencies and reduce our expenses. But because students have not been very engaged in high school the last two years, many of them have fallen behind academically. Many of them have not met with counselors face-to-face to get advice about moving on to college. And frankly, the economy is strong. So students who are high school graduates are able to earn more than they were two or three years ago. And they're taking advantage of that by going directly into the workforce. That may not pay off for them in the long run, but they see it as paying off for them now. So they're delaying entry into college. And so we're not anticipating a quick turnaround in that enrollment decline. One one thing I want to ask is financially, if this does go through and passes like we're guessing it's going to look, what would be the financial impact to the community colleges? Well, the financial impact comes in two ways. One is if there are increased salaries and benefits as a result. But more immediately, just the costs of negotiation uh, for collective bargaining. We would have to have new human resources professionals at the system office and at each college. We'd have to have dramatically more spent on legal services. So all of those things, and we project costs just for the negotiation and collective bargaining process. When you look at all 13 colleges, 38 locations, we're looking at costs anywhere from three to $12 million per year. Wow. And that again is assuming no increase in salaries or benefits. Um, So we know the cost could be high and unpredictable. And has there been any engagement from the lawmakers that are drafting this legislation? Well, we have recently had a chance to meet with one of the sponsors, but we hadn't had much engagement uh, from the beginning. We knew this bill was coming. They told us it was coming, but we've not had the opportunity to review drafts, and we still haven't seen the bill that's expected to drop in the next few days. We don't know if there have been changes made to it based on our input or not. So... um Based on that, and that's concerning to hear that it was it was very late in the game. Um, have you had any of your um, faculty staff express that they're frustrated or wanting to have um, more of a voice? What's that been look? What ha- what does that look like for you? Really, we've had very little of that. Um, you know, we uh, have um, a faculty senates at each college. And we have a state faculty council member on our board of governors. So we hear regularly from faculty. We hadn't been hearing as much from our adjunct faculty, and they're critically important. So we created what's called, we call an instructor's council, so that the adjunct faculty at each college get to vote for their own representative. We don't pick them. The faculty do. And then that group comes together as a state uh, instructor's council And they recently put together a proposal for increased salaries. It was very well argued. It was very well put together. And they presented that to us. And we are presenting it to the board and to our presidents to consider as we move forward to build our budgets for next year. 
So they do have a voice and we value that voice and that input. So if, um, you, if this bill passed, you would not be able to, it sounds like you would not be able to even consider any kind of pay increase. Well, certainly not with the uh, fiscal environment we're in now. What I told the bill sponsor uh, and the head of the uh, labor organization behind this is that this really should be step two. If we do not first address the structural funding problems that we have here in Colorado around funding public institutions of higher education, it's the collective bargaining isn't really going to help. Collective bargaining cannot force us to pay money we do not have. We saw it happen in New Mexico two years ago with the collective bargaining bill. That bill said you can collectively bargain, but the institutions can only increase pay in an amount that's consistent with their increase in the state budget. And so there the employees collectively bargained and they got the same 3% that they would have received had there been no collective bargaining. So it really didn't help anybody. I want to make sure everybody knows that um, you previously served as Lieutenant Governor um, of Colorado. And when you did that, you became intimately um, aware, involved with how the fiscal policy for Colorado works. And that's something that's unique. Most people don't understand that. So there's nothing that you say here or share here that you don't intimately understand with regard to the state budget, correct? That is correct. You know, I've been, of course, I was the lieutenant governor. I was also the head of the state department of higher education. So I worked with all of the higher education institutions in the state. I was also the president of the university in Pueblo. Previous to that, I was president of Pikes Peak Community College. So I presented before the joint budget committee virtually every year in the last 20 years. I know how the state budget works and I know what our restrictions are because of the various constitutional uh, provisions that are unique here in Colorado. Well, we don't want to take any more of your time. I know you have to run. Any last words before you go? Just this, that we really do care about our employees. We really do think it's important to pay them fairly. We know it because they have other places they can go. If we don't provide working conditions that uh, are uh, supportive and salaries that are not livable, we want to be able to do both of those things, regardless of whether we have collective bargaining. We just do not see that collective bargaining is a constructive way to get to those uh, results. Well, thank you for coming on the show. And I, I got to throw this out here too. the, I don't know if you remember me, but we went to the Allard you. Capital Conference together. That, uh, was a bit younger and, oh, and less you. gray, <laughs> but I, I appreciate all your hard work. And I went to CSU Pueblo when you were there and you always work great with me through my various professions through the year. So I appreciate that personally. Uh, it's my pleasure. It's good to see you there. Thank you, and thank you, Chancellor. You do so much. The college, uh, the community college system, is so such a vital part of education for Colorado. And um, I just appreciate that you're there at the helm, and, and that you're always willing to get in and and mix it up and and make sure that the right thing gets done. I appreciate that. Thank you both. All right. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye. Okay. All right. Now we can keep going. What? Do you want to talk more? Yeah, let's talk more. All we right. can do that. Oh my goodness! So much going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, like like I mentioned it then there, um, man. I was young, and we brought everybody out to DC, 
and um, Chancellor Garcia and his wife went out there and we did this app, uh, this capital conference where they got to meet everybody in DC and it was pretty cool. And he, he really helped um, CSU Pueblo, a lot of their faculty and um, administration came out with it. So I got to know them and unfortunately it was towards the end of that job. We knew we were going away, but um, I, I've always respected him um, in any capacity that he's been in. He's always been there to lend a hand and help, whether it was with constituent services or setting up meetings to addressing some of the issues from a state level, a school level, anything. So uh, it was good to have him on the show and talk to him about this very, very important issue that's coming up and see the perspective from that side of the argument. Well, and he's always been such a champion for um, any marginalized communities. He's always stood up and and made his voice known. Um, And so I think everybody looks to him, uh, especially to be the really the resource, but also the champion for these issues. And I think you've got to go if, if, Chancellor Garcia has a problem with it, we should all be paying attention to it because he's very supportive of his, um, and he has a really great working relationship with all the college presidents. He doesn't ignore anybody. Um, And even us, there's been, I've met with him several times um, here and what needs to be done. And um, I think one of the, you know, when we talk about workforce development and education, one of the most important things um, that I think uh, the community college adds to that is the ease with which you can do dual enrollment while you're in high school. It's yeah. a hugely important piece and it's expanded tremendously since he has been the chancellor. Yeah. And you know, one thing that we didn't talk about, I know we spoke about it on the show before is that a community college offers an opportunity um, specifically for a non-traditional student yeah. So basically a non-traditional student is anybody that's not going to college out of high school. Right. Um, the larger universities, they, they do cater to that, but I mean, that's the community college's bread and butter, right? It's like you're a mom and you know, you're hitting your thirties. Um, your kids are old enough. You could go back to school, uh, get a career, get some training, whatever it is, you can go to a community college and they do everything. They've been over backwards to make that work, to make, to help you succeed. Yeah. Um, and, and all universities do. It's just that the community colleges, they, that's kind of what they cater to. Um, no, they, and they do such a, they do such a great, um, it's a huge service. And when you think about the worries about the costs, um, of education, yeah, uh, we're not going to give the twins a choice. The twins are going to do that. They're going to do dual enrollment when they get yeah. there. But you know, he's right that, and I guess that's with a lot of the bills that are happening right now that um, that we're concerned about that we're tracking. Um, we and, and to be fair, these the majority of these bills start off with good intentions, right? Oh no, they do. It, They're it good is. intentions. Nobody's out to ruin community colleges. No, no, no. The ag industry or whatever, but. It is good intentions, but I, it bothers me when, you know, the person that is in charge of all of these community colleges in the state said he is just now engaging with one of the bill authors, whereas they've been working on this, as we know, for two years. Yeah, it's been out there. And, for two years. And, and it's it seems like from his perspective, it's been crickets. And not only with this legislation, we've seen it with others. 
So this is a, this was an interesting conversation that I had, and um, I was told I would might be getting a call from the press about this, but it's this whole idea of the importance of the stakeholder process. Yes. Um, so the other bills we're watching right now that we're generally concerned about, honestly, have to do with their impacts on the housing crisis. And again, they start out with great intentions. They start out with, um, let's, let's do this because we see that this is a problem. Now, is it actually a problem or are there, are there solutions that are already in place Are who else is working? All the things that we're forced to ask every time we start to do a project or somebody comes to us with something like who else is working on this, blah, blah, blah. We ask all those things. So the stakeholder process that I participated in yesterday, and let me back up and say, um, in years past, this has been robust. The stakeholder process has been robust. And I get that um, during COVID that, that all, some of the stuff went by the wayside. And it's, I'm not trying to fault anybody for that. Nobody, It's nobody's responsibility to fix everything that went, you know, everything that's mm-hmm. wrong. But a stakeholder process has to include more than lip service. It has to be actually what's going on and where are we at with it. So I testified on on, um, House Bill 1244 a couple of weeks ago. That was an air toxins bill. Um, There's – and – you know, we talked about this before, but we don't we don't take a position on a bill unless um, it's already been introduced. So all we can do is express our opinion on the concept of the bill ahead of time, like we're doing right now with this collective yeah. bargaining thing. Because we don't even know what it's going to be. No, we don't. And it, there might there might just be a few amendments. It might be fine, and there's a few amendments that everybody can live with or whatever. But that stakeholder process has to be in place. Otherwise, um, you're doing what we're seeing right now, where there's bills that are waiting to be introduced the the one the reason yesterday was weird, and I'm not I don't even know they, it wasn't signed yet it hasn't it hasn't been introduced but they said we're going to do the stakeholder process so they called us we all got on this call um, they talked about some of the concepts in the bill they didn't show us the bill they didn't show us the language um, we asked about a fiscal note they wouldn't share the fiscal note we asked about who their partners were who like what stakeholder you know, and then it, we got some conflicting um, information about it. How can we weigh in on a bill we haven't seen? And then they're going to say, well, we did the stakeholder process. And um, for those who may not know, how long is left in this session? Three weeks. Three weeks. Three weeks. And the amount of bills that have been introduced, thankfully, has gone way down. I think there's right around, um, last count, there was like right around 500 and. 36 yeah. or something like two weeks ago it was 536 but then we're hearing about all these bills that haven't gotten introduced yet and how are we going to manage this we're i'm literally because we've got the housing summit next week yep and it's i might be spending most of my week at the capitol because but we don't know because they're going to introduce it used to be they'd introduce a bill on a thursday late and we'd all scream because you're introducing a bill late on a thursday and then um, they would have the committee, it would be in committee hearings um, on Tuesday or Wednesday the next week. And so we were, that's not, you know, st- adequate stakeholder input um, on any of this. The reason that's such a big deal is because look at what we just heard from the chancellor. Mm-hmm. This will be hugely impactful with no 
they don't need it right the second they don't yeah. need it they're going to do all these services that they that needs to happen especially an increase in pay and benefits that need to happen for their staff especially in light of the tremendous increase of um, inflation right the second it's not going to benefit them but why are we not having these conversations earlier on yeah because then they could work through the details like he said uh, and I'm glad he brought it up but the New Mexico bill um I, I have a close friend whose wife is a teacher in New Mexico, and she was talking about that, how, um, you know, they went through the collect, collective bargaining mm-hmm. process, and their raise was exactly the same as it would have been. Had they not. Had they not. How crazy but is this? at the same time as that, they they had to cut different areas of her department based on um, – Revenue because, like you said, you have to pay for and the the legal side of it, the HR side of it. So in doing that, she actually, one of her co-professors went part-time and then she took over half of the classes for the the same amount of money basically because So how does, you know, you're supposed to be serving students. How does this serve students? I don't understand that. And I I think this isn't um, anything against collective bargaining. We're not trying to say that. Um, this is just unintended consequences and an example of where without the engagement and really seeing the big picture, kind of a one size fits all that it does have negative consequences. Again, starting with good intentions. Um, but there is a negative aspect to it. Well, and, and I think the, the impact on rules. So, um, we're talking about collective bargaining, and it hasn't been introduced. Maybe it won't get introduced. I don't know. We don't know. We don't hopefully, know. Hopefully, hopefully uh, there's enough noise being made. We, that yeah, they, that it doesn't happen. Sit back and work on it. Like, work on this. Spend some time on it. Engage with people. Find a solution. Don't just like, hey, we're going to do this, but we're not going to show you what it is. Uh-oh, right. it's almost over. Right. Boom. So then, um, so the housing ones. So it's from three different from three different angles. So we're looking at one, um, and I let me give credit where credit's due. Um, Representative Wiseman um, texted me this morning. Um, saying, I understand that Action 22 has some opinions on um, House Bill 1363 that we're, that he's getting, or that it's been introduced and it's going to be in committee next week. Which is? Which is, sorry. <laughs> sorry, you, when you're in it, you get the numbers all the time and then they get thrown out and it gets all muddled in your head. Yeah. Um, it's about special districts, but in particular um, metropolitan districts. Now, I'm going to have the conversation, so I'm not going to go into detail with you now. We will go into detail on this, but um, because of, I'm just going to give you the long and short of it. Um, there needs to be some consumer protections with regard to metropolitan districts, and there needs to be consu- consumer protections on everything. I mean, they just need to do that. But when you take out mechanisms for investment to not get a return, then you're setting yourself up for failure. So this, so right now what we're looking at is whether or not, and I'm, again, I'm giving benefit of the doubt because, um, because the, the legislator reached out specifically to us. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt on it, but, um, because of Tabor in Colorado, local governments cannot do these big housing projects, these big housing, um, developments Mm -hmm. okay because of Tabor because we don't want governments to get overgrown that's a whole other issue so this would preclude investment the way it's reading right this minute this would include 
preclude investors from um, making any kind of return. And that's the only way housing projects would move yeah. forward or housing developments would move forward. Do you see the problem? Yeah. Um, and, and, and again, um, you know, investors, if they go into a housing project, they're not looking to make them like a ton of profit right off the bat. No, it's a, a sure way for long-term return, like low long-term return. Um, it's not just like going and building a bunch of apartments and, you know, charging a billion dollars to live there or whatever. And honestly, the market won't bear that, but we are in a housing crisis. Yes. So you've got a bill like that. And then you've got another bill that, um, that's being introduced and discussed about um, residential housing. Um, there's lots of discussion about this residential and um, and commercial buildings having to go through a statewide code that would prevent them from um, using um, or implementing natural gas. And again, that's another one that there's decisions being made. Those need to be made on the local level. Mm-hmm. If you have a problem with air quality, then you can do that um, or do whatever you need to do. Um, But that needs to be local. Somebody in Denver should not be making the decisions on how our building codes go for Pueblo County or Los Animas County or some of these other counties. We don't have the same problems that they do. And so when we talk about housing, um, the housing crisis I want to scream, please first do no harm. Look around and say, is this impact going to be worth the cost that's going to be paid for this? So you've got all these layers of all these different leg- pieces of legislation that are coming in, and we're trying to solve the housing crisis. Yeah. How are we going to do this when we keep getting hit after hit after hit? It's it's exhausting. Although, I'm very tired. Um, I will not name any names. Okay. <laughs> but... There are a few areas in Colorado where I think that somebody needs to come in and implement a building code. <laughs> and if no, you know what I'm talking about, I you do. Know, know exactly what I'm talking I about. I do. I do. <laughs> there has but to be a little bit of control. There's got to be some control, but that's got to be local, yeah, right? It needs to I be know. the local I'm people. I'm just joking, but well, still. No, I think you're, I think you talk about it quite a, you've talked about it quite a bit and it's, yeah. we've seen some implementation where, um, like for example, the vacant, there's a vacant tax or something. It's not a tax, but yeah, it's a tax. Oh, yeah, like the vacancy, the vacancy, yeah. like that's been highly effective. There's, but those need to be local yep. discussions and not statewide. Let's slap this on everybody. Um, but even uh, so, so there were all those fires in up in Boulder County. Yep. Um, and I don't know, I'm sure they call it Louisville because we're in Colorado, but if it's Louisville, whatever, that community, they're struggling. They, the, what their houses were insured for will not pay for them to rebuild it. And it's yeah. not like they're just going to get this money. They're most, most of those insurance policies are to rebuild, not to just pay off your mortgage or pay it out. And they're not going to be able to do that because the cost overruns with inflation and building and all that. Now you're going to add so much more with a regulation that really doesn't deliver any kind of um, net gain. We'll call it that way. I think. Okay. What do you think? That when you are looking to introduce something like this that, you know, these bills that we're saying impacts 
rural Colorado, mostly financially, to, to be fair, this is all <laughs> yeah, financial. No, and, it is. And it is. rural Colorado, even though, you know, we made it through the pandemic, okay, but even pre-pandemic, we're struggling financially, right? Yeah. It's kind of like the the hospital argument and, um, you know, like say Pueblo or, or Alamosa or anywhere. It's like they're operating on a 0.01% margin, percent margin yeah. of profit. And they um, have anything go wrong yeah, and they're in the yeah. red. And that's similar to our rural counties, right? Oh my gosh. They're, yes. Like, thanks they're, for They're actually counties. losing, yes. like most of them are, are losing money on it. Or they're, they're way in... And we looked at this a couple of yeah. years ago. What happens when a county goes bankrupt? Yeah, it's it's bad. But my thought, and somebody was talking about this, like, hey, why don't we take these these great ideas, again, good intentions, and say, well, let's just try it in Denver. <laughs> let's do this. Let's try it in Denver for five, five years, years and look back and see what the impacts were and what it actually did. And then we'll talk about taking it um, through the rest of the state or, you know, furthering uh, it out but but unfortunately that's not the way it works it's it's not and i don't can they even do that can you legislate something for a specific county or city from a state level or well, does it have we to be call them pilot programs so okay so you, you could like start a pilot program in denver but can you enforce it oh i don't know because if they pass legislation does it have to so can so can they pass legislation that only applies to Pueblo County? Yeah, I or don't. or could they pass legislation that only applies to cities or counties over a certain population? So I think that's the way. To so do here's it. how. Yeah, no, that's right. So here's how they do it. They'll say we're going to pass this, but you can opt out. Like there's there's certain um, parameters they'll set that okay, this won't apply to you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? If you're under this size, or if you're this, or if you're that. Um, you know, and I'm thinking if I can think of an example of that in the with this group of this particular set of legislation, if there's opt out, um, but that's but then that goes into sometimes the opt out it has to get voted on, like yeah. debrucing, for example. Well, what if what if Let's you did? Let's muddy the waters as ho- much as we can. What if they did something like say an air quality thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, say you pass a bill that says you must adhere to these standards or go through this process if your quality of air is this Yeah, high. so that when that's when they start talking about attainment, non-attainment, yeah. and, and that. Um, and some of it, especially in past years, you know, when they've worked really, really hard and they've gone through the stakeholder process and they've produced some some really decent bills that have just, I mean, the, the really great bills are ones that have gotten beat to death before they yeah. get in there. But that's the good part. That's what... But legislators don't want to deal with that now. But, yeah. and, and I can understand it. You want to get something done and it feels it feels overwhelming to try to do that. But. Um, and not to mention we're going into an election cycle. Oh. Just throwing that out there too. I just made that noise. That, <laughs> that was me sighing, going, ugh. Um, yes. And of course, that's going to play a, play a part in it and we all get it. I guess that's the whole thing is when we're looking and I'm going to talk about this, honestly, a little bit at the housing summit, I'm going to take some executive Liberty and talk about who do you serve when we're talking about who, um, considering who you're going to run, um, or who you're going to vote for. Cause here's, what's interesting. And you don't hear this right this minute because it's a terrifying number for some people. 
So I think, is it 42 or 46% of Colorado voters are um, unaffiliated now? Yeah, I I always think, and, and it's gone up, but it's generally like a third, third, third. Yeah, so but this number, I saw I something. I saw something this last week where it was like it was like forty two or forty six percent. That might be specifically for an area. I, I forget. I always looked at it as a third, a third. Yeah, third. I always I thought a third, a third, a third. But what I'm saying is, I think those numbers are going up. Oh, they're definitely going up. So, are you? Is the person that you're considering voting for? And your vote, if you, if you subscribe to the idea that your vote matters and you're trying to decide who you're going to hire to represent you, are they serving Coloradans? I'm just going to leave it there. Are they serving Coloradans or who are they serving? And um, while I appreciate the intent, um, I wish that they would look at their intent um, was first do no harm. Yeah. Can we can we put that? Is there a way to slap that on legislation? Some I hope kind so. of some kind of metrics to say first do no harm. Okay. Oh. So um, with that, we do have the housing summit next week. This we do. so this Friday when this goes up, it'll be. The Friday after you hear this, the upcoming Friday when you hear this. Yeah, April our, 29th. Yep, April 29th. Go to action22.org to get all the information on how to register tickets, what's going to happen. I have the agenda on there. Um, thank all of our wonderful sponsors for it. Take a look at that. Yeah. Oh, I'm very excited for your comments. You're going to speak. Oh, yeah. I keep forgetting I'm going to speak. I have no idea what I'm going to speak about, but it will no, be No, I do. I know what you're going to speak okay. about. All this really great. So there's some really great solutions that we've heard as we started working on this that you're going to talk about. I know what you're going to talk about because yep. I'm already telling everybody. Yep. Um, but also um, some of the veteran, because that's a, a big concern is the, the housing side for, for veterans. That's a constant concern, right? Oh, yeah. Um, either houses cannot pass inspection for a VA loan or a first-time homebuyer's loan. Or they're too much for them. So like Pueblo County is a really good example where you were able to come in, buy a decent house for not a lot of money, and your VA loan can cover it. Now they're just turning them away because they're asking, you know, 50, 60, 80, 100,000 over what it was two years ago. And unfortunately, first-time homebuyers and VA loans can't get those houses. Well, and the inspection, um, and that's talk about you, that. Yeah, when you go, um, so you go lower, right? So you go buy a house that may not be as good as what you want. Right. And due to the, the aging housing stock in these areas, you know, over 50 years old, up to 120 years old, they cannot pass a VA inspection. I'll, I'll tell you this. My house was built in like 73 mm-hmm. and it did not pass a VA inspection and it is taken care of. And so we had to do, I think oh, we had to put heck. in like a couple grand worth of work just, just to, so could, just so it could pass inspection. And you did that couple grand worth of work, what, two years ago? Uh, four years ago. Four years ago. Three or four years so ago. that few thousand dollars would triple. If, right, uh, yeah. And, today. And, and if, um, I wanted to buy my house for what it's worth now with my VA loan, Couldn't I would not have been able to do it. Same with us. Yeah. I mean, we don't have a VA loan, um, but yeah, there's no way we could afford to get our house, what it's valued at now as compared to when we um, bought it like 
12, 13 years ago or whatever. So that's these are the solutions we're going to be trying to talk about. We're going to try to figure out how to navigate some of these um, some of this new legislation that's coming down. We're hoping that we're making going to make a loud enough noise that um, our our legislators and decision makers will stop and say, um, "Okay, we need to either rethink this, pull this bill, work on it over the summer, and come back." That's our hope on some of these things, and. Um, and we'll put it out there. Um, I talked with Beasley this morning and, uh, he said, you know, action 22 would be really great to host some of these, um, stakeholder things. So we'll be happy to do that if we can genuinely have conversations that, um, so the impact is first do no harm. So, um, we hope you guys join us. We're sorry that, um, it was kind of doom and gloom today. Um, we're really excited to see everybody at the housing summit. I'm looking forward to it. We've gotten lots of help, um, along the way. We've got really great sponsors. We're going to put on a really fun event for you. If you've already registered, um, you're going to be getting a packet, um, in the next few days about, uh, parking and all that great stuff that you need to know. Um, also, if you've not been into an action 22 event before, um, this is, uh, wear sneakers cause this is intense. It goes really, really fast. Your brain is going to be really full to overflowing by the time you're done. Um, but you're going to be able to turn around and deliver to your community some really productive solutions that can be implemented today. So with that, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, email us at show at action22.org. If you're interested in becoming a member of action 22, which you should be, Go to action22.org, and you can find the information there. And we will be back probably in a week. It's been busy, so we're kind of hit and miss right now with everything going on. But we'll get back at you probably next week. Yep. And hey, Chad Vorthman, I know you're listening. So um, there's a total badass lobbyist uh, that I see at the Capitol all the time I want to talk to you about someday. We'll talk soon. All right. Bye. Oh, I'm so glad to have you back, Patty. We love to see you it's so great much. To see you too. So we're sitting here uh, with Patty or Javik, with Dr. Javik, who is the president of Public Community College, and we are in it in the legislative session. And so you'll have to listen to the other episode when we were talking about the same bill. Um, but the higher ed is out of this bill and now on the, it's on the counties. Um, but before we get a little bit too into that, I just, uh, we, I sit on the, on your community, um, Advisory Council. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. On the Community Advisory Council. And there was a moment in our meeting yesterday that I just, it just did my heart so much good. You were talking about how happy you were to, for the spring fling and for everybody to be back there again. And you just got so happy. And I could see you getting emotional about it. And then me and my dumb questions, I was like, are you a little bit emotional about it? And then you did get a little <laughs> bit emotional about it. Um, yeah. But it was just, to me, it spoke so much of not just your spirit, but the spirit of the, of our community leaders around. And, you know, that's one of the things that drives me and keeps me wanting to be in this mess that we're in is that everybody that we serve is serving their community in a really big way. And you're one of the best servants forever. So it's been so cool for me because I, I started my career admiring you and what you did and your previous roles and the different, but you've always served the community. Um, mm -hmm. But it was, um, 
it was wonderful to just be reminded of that yesterday. But also, it's the reason we wanted to put so much effort into it. When you started to talk about this bill and what it was going to do, I could see you were near your breaking point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about that. Well, it's true that I was extremely concerned. You know, this is budget time. Mm-hmm. And we really weren't sure how much uh, the General Assembly was going to um, send to higher ed, one thing. And then we weren't sure whether or not we were going to be allowed to any sort of tuition increase. So coming off of two really, really very difficult years, not knowing what our budget um, was going to look like, and then hearing that there was uh, this contemplation of a collective bargaining uh, piece of legislation, uh, it, you're right. It, it just about puts you over the edge. Yeah. Because without a doubt, with uh, any sort of legislation or not, we care deeply about our employees, about our faculty and staff and our adjunct. And in, in all honesty, this piece of legislation is almost like putting the cart before the horse, in my opinion. First of all, we as a state need to um, decide whether or not higher education is really, really important. And if it is really, really important, then it needs to be funded uh, accordingly. And then if we are funded properly, then there are more resources for us to um, invest in our faculty, our part-time instructors, our, our APT but right now, as you, you can appreciate, we are in a very turbulent time. And this whole great resignation isn't helping matters. And um, even, you know, institution to institution, we're competing for that very small pool of talent. And, um, and it's, it's almost like a, a, a bidding war. Yeah. Who can pay the most for uh, a, a, an APT or a faculty? And then when you lose the bidding war, it just drives the faculty and the the department chairs and the deans crazy because now what? We are offering a program. We don't have the qualified instructor, and we have to start all over again. So, and and on top of that, enrollment numbers are down. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's you know it's a result of COVID. We had Chancellor Garcia on the show um, yesterday. I think it was. Seems yeah. like it was a week ago already. I know. I know. <laughs> but, it's been so. Hectic. But you know that that's one thing that he was talking about. That you know you are a tuition driven institution, and enrollment is just down right now. So it must have been um, hurtful to the point of almost, it must have felt almost insulting for something like this to come up in light of all that. It's not like this is a secret that there's this kind of struggle, but them to say, we want to add burden to you. And the burden we want to add is because we don't think that you take care of your people. That had to have, yeah. that had to have landed very personally. Yeah. That, that was a, a misguided uh, interpretation. And I know um, there are many people that feel that, um, you know, government entities are wasteful. I'm here to tell you that community colleges do the very best with mm-hmm. the least amount. Yeah. And um, just to give you an example, before I came here, um, we I was at um, our uh, physical therapy assistant celebration. Think about these students. When, when they started the program, we were in the middle of COVID. Mm-hmm. We had to split them up. There's 20 students in the class. We had to split them up, 10, 10 in one room, 10 in another. They, these students never saw each other for the first year. Then wow. reintegrating them back for year two for a 
very brief period of time before we sent them out on their clinicals. We're expecting greatness from these students. And our faculty did greatness. Yeah. You know, and, um, and they never once um, hesitated. So those are the people that we want to celebrate. Of course we want to celebrate them. Of course we want to give them more. We want to give them all the goodness that life has to offer. We need the funding because it is absolutely unacceptable to put that on the backs of our students. And that's what would happen. I we couldn't we couldn't agree more. And I wanted to get into that because I'm a little bit worried, and I think you are too, that they're not looking at these issues through that lens, through the lens of who it actually affects and who it it um, who would have to carry that burden. And that's that's the thing that. Um, we're a little bit worried about the the other thing, and this is the theme for the rest of this. And it's just it's not just about this particular bill, but we're seeing this um, everywhere. This session, it was that stakeholder process. So, mm-hmm. how much conversation did the sponsors of this bill have with you? Um, because this one sponsors is from here. So, how much yeah. conversation did you? How much were you engaged when they were putting this together? So. Um, uh, Representative Escar uh, and I have not had any sort of face-to-face interaction. Um, I attended the legislative breakfast. That's where I got um, information from from my legislator. Um, of course, she has had uh, conversations with Chancellor Garcia and the system and our lobbyists, but none. Uh, I have text her and uh, expressed my concern. And I want to tell you that this morning I also text her and sent her a great big note of thank you and appreciation. Yes. So it's not just a want, 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 right. but also thank Thanks you for, for listening and responding and, and taking our concerns into consideration. So that's what we really wanted to highlight today with you. Um, we are going to go ahead and push out the conversation with, um, with Chancellor Garcia, but we wanted, uh, and especially because you and I have been at, interacting on this for the last several months, and Brian, um, we've been having these conversations a lot, and it was really important, and every time, um, either one of us visited with uh, Representative Escar on this. That was the one thing that we said, and and she would nod. I know she was listening mm-hmm. to it, um, and it actually shows. We you know we weren't sh- we weren't entirely sure until yesterday when we saw the language of the bill that she was actually listening um, on how and negatively impactful this would have been for who exactly who we're supposed to be serving, which is students. So it's students, then it's faculty, and then it's the region. So, um, so yeah. So um, I'm glad you brought that up, and I'm glad you said that. So thank you, and I'm glad. I appreciate you reaching out to her and telling her that. Of course, of yeah. course. And I'm sure that she heard many different perspectives from many, many different people. And so maybe a direct response was unrealistic. But again, I, I felt strongly enough to contact her and I felt equally strong this morning to send Say a thank big you. thank yeah. you. Thank you Good. for listening. So. I'm glad. I'm glad because we're we're gonna get into this battle with our um with our county commissioners. So we're not ready to thank her yet. But um, <laughs> right this minute. Well higher we, ed is ready. <laughs> but higher ed so we appreciate that you've that you've done yeah. that on and, our and, behalf. And and, and again behalf. I yeah. do think it's bittersweet because it's still my community. I know that our county commissioners are still very, very concerned. 
if resources have to be placed to um, fulfill this legislation, something's going to give. Right. And what services will be um, eliminated, what resources will be eliminated, those are still big concerns. Yeah. Well, and and Brian will say this quicker than I will usually because I'm one of those protective mama bear types, but you know, it was best intentions when it started, right? Mm-hmm. It was best intentions when it started. So um, we'll give we'll give them that. But uh, it's that listening and showing that you're listening that actually makes a difference in the end. So, yeah. Dr. Javik, thanks for being with us thank today. You. Thanks thank you for so coming much. back. And thank in. you too for everything you do to advocate oh. on behalf of not only Pueblo but all the counties that you serve. We sure thank do you. appreciate both. Of thank you. Very, well, thank you. Much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. This episode of Making Action Happen is sponsored by Action 22's amazing energy leaders, Excel Energy, Colorado Rural Electric Association, Colorado Oil and Gas Association, Gil Romero and the Capital Success Group, Black Hills Energy, Nextera Energy, San Isabel Electric Association, Outshine Energy, Colorado Solar and Storage Association, Tri-State and 174 Power Global. Action 22 is a nonpartisan, membership-driven organization which serves as a voice for action on public policy for 22 southern Colorado counties on the state and federal level. We focus on how issues relating to Colorado legislation, local government affairs, health care, education, and natural resources intersect for the economic health of our region. If you're a leader in your community and are considering joining Action 22, you can get more information by emailing show at action22.org or visit our website at action22.org.